It was wonderful to have the opportunity to speak with Andy Hunter this week, founder of the pioneering bookshop.org. Nothing excites me more than speaking to a founder that has sought to shake up an industry, especially during a global pandemic, to revolutionise a space dominated by Amazon and to make it a success takes guts, determination and an unwavering belief in the power of small independent businesses. We spoke of how a childhood passion for books has led to a lifelong quest to ensure that future generations will live in a thriving literary world whilst having the opportunity to shop responsibly. With such shared values and a determination to change the world for the better is why it was such a privilege to be inspired by Andy this week. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street from the kitchen table, and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Andy. It's really such a pleasure to meet you today, albeit virtually. The moment I heard about Bookshop, I just absolutely was desperate to interview you because it was genius. I just told everybody, anyone I meet, I just told them about this. You're recording today from Brooklyn, New York. I'm imagining what you're overlooking. Can you tell me, do you have a view at the moment? My view is of probably 30 unpacked boxes because I just moved. I spent the first part of this pandemic in a 450 square foot apartment with two children who were homeschooling. Oh my goodness. And trying to launch Bookshop. It was too much for me in the end. So we finally moved out and got a slightly bigger place and we haven't unpacked yet. So um, what I'm looking at is a wreck and I hope <laughs> to have some time this weekend to organize it. Well, thank you even more that you're surrounded by unpacked boxes and you're doing this podcast. And also happy Thanksgiving. I believe it was Thanksgiving yesterday. Is that right? Yes, it was Thanksgiving. A kind of a strange Thanksgiving because we had to see each other all on Zoom. Mm. In a way, it allowed us to connect to cousins and people we hadn't seen in a long time that never would have made out the trip. So we had a, actually a really large family Thanksgiving connecting to cousins and aunts and uncles all over the country. So that was kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, it's quite amazing, isn't it, this time? As much as anything, I think that video technology and allowing us to connect with lots of people, that will stay with us. Yes, my mom knows how to Zoom now. That's, Uh-oh. that's pretty wild. Well, it's lovely to see you. I was wondering if we might start with you sharing your story of where your love of books come from, because this is definitely the golden thread that runs through your life. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people who end up loving books are people who have some kind of social awkwardness in their, in their childhood. Not always, but certainly in my case. I was raised by a mother who was struggling with mental illness, a single mother. And because of my kind of unusual upbringing, I wasn't good at things like dressing myself or taking showers or like mowing our lawn. Like we had the house in the neighborhood that had grass that came up to your knees. It was a almost strange and awkward and kind of wild childhood. And I did have some friends, but I also gravitated towards books to find a place for understanding the world and understanding myself and a place to retreat to, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, learn from and explore. And they gave me a sense of connection to life and humanity in a way that that I really needed as a child and still need today. I really think of books as saving my life in that time period, and I feel indebted to them. Something I I said recently in another interview is if a person saves your life, you owe them. Mm. You have to return the favor, you know, and I think if books save your life, you owe books. And so for me, it's not just about 
dedicating my life to books as a reader or even an editor or publisher, but it's also dedicating my life to trying to reinforce the culture around books that I love, to keep them relevant, keep them a vital part of our popular culture. First question, and you've already blown me away. I've never actually heard anyone say anything like that. And I reflect on my own journey. I'm I'm wondering if small businesses saved my life. Did you have a favorite childhood book or one that particularly is connected with you, one that you've bought for your own children? Well, it's always dependent on the phase of my life, right? Like third grade, Chronicles of Narnia, for sure. Oh, yeah. Fourth grade, Bridge to Terabithia. Fifth grade, Watership Down by Richard Adams. Yes. And sixth grade, The Tin Drum by Gunter Grass, which was the first kind of grown-up literary book that I read. But it was about a child who has the ability to break glass with his screams. It was very compelling to me, and it really set me off on serious reading, where I started reading my mother's books from that she had left over from college and started reading more and more, which really helped, I guess. And I, I, always, I was always exploring whatever books were around me. Remember once I went to vacation with my family in this cabin in Maine, and I think the cabin had been owned by some people who were sort of leftist anarchist hippies like in the <laughs> 70s and they had all of these books by uh, like the strawberry statement which is about student activism in colombia um the women's room which was an early feminist novel the autobiography of malcolm x those books were just there on their shelves i was 16 i was curious i hadn't brought a book so i plowed through all those books in a two-week period those two weeks completely changed my worldview. Mm. Just having those books around blew my mind and it made me so much understand so much more of the world, politics, racial politics, the sexual revolution and feminism and all of these things that like as a 16-year-old growing up in a suburban Massachusetts town, I would never would have been exposed to. And that kind of power to reshape your worldview and reshape your mind is just unparalleled in books. What do you think? I have a 16-year-old. How do you get books back into the mainstream of my son's world when you're competing against technology? I'm not going to lie. It is really hard. And it's hard because the people who are designing the phone that your son is probably addicted to have a real strong understanding of human nature and the way the brain works and how habits are formed. They know exactly what to do to have endorphin rushes that cause them to engage in repeat activities and behaviors to look for another endorphin rush. And it all ends up leaving you or him or all of us sort of depleted in a way that we're constantly looking to refill. Mm. And the refilling is the critical thing. Like the rewards that you're getting through these devices are very insubstantial. They don't last long. They don't actually make you feel better. They don't actually add to the richness of your life in the long run. And you can see that because people's anxieties are higher than ever. Mm -hmm. People's insecurities are higher than ever. You know, social media has corresponded with a big spike in depression among adolescents. So there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical that this thing that, you know, might be briefly making you happy or interested or that you're obsessed with picking up every two minutes isn't actually conducive to having a better life and, and a better inner life. Unfortunately, the book is never going to hardwire itself to your neural receptors the way that your phone can. So you have to slow down. And you, first of all, like I tell my kids that technology is addictive. I tell them how important it is to be conscious and I try to get them to slow down and, you know, regulate the time that they have on there and introduce them to books that I think will excite them too. Mm. I mean, it doesn't have to be like eating health food. And in fact, the more it's like eating health food that you, you know, you're doing it because it's good for you, but you don't feel pleasure out of it. That's not going to build a sustained habit. Yes. You do have to give them pleasure. So I try to choose books that I know that they're going to like. And, and I understand that it's a, a stepping stone to other books. So like I start with graphic novels with my seven-year-old. You know, I let her read things that are scary. If she wants to read something scary, I let her read stuff. I let my nine-year-old read stuff that has some romance in it. I don't try to protect them too much. You know, I don't give them books that are completely age inappropriate, but I give them books that I know they're going to be curious enough and get something out of enough to read. And they're developing mental muscles that will allow them to then take on more meaningful work. So I think, you know, trying to 
speak frankly with them about what's happening to their brain and how important it is for them to slow down, have a meditative experience and break that cycle so they really understand it. And then giving them books to read in the beginning, especially that they're going to actually be able to get something out of that are going to be exciting and interesting to them. Mm -hmm. And then leading them down a path where, you know, you can discuss a book with them. You can read it together. Like that can be quality time that you spend with your child. You can sit there and read a book together and then you can discuss it as you read it. You can talk about what's happening in it. So it's a social experience with them and a way for them to bond with you as well, which might make it more interesting for them. What brilliant tips. What brilliant tips. My son's currently reading Sapiens and I've read it. Now, when he does tear himself away from the screen, we have the most wonderful debates about each chapter. And you're so right. There's something so magical about bonding over a book. I want to go back to your childhood. What was your time like at school? Because it sounds as though you were a pretty studious pupil. Not really. I loved reading and I liked writing and I liked coming up with stories. But I didn't pay attention in school. I was extremely distracted. I was a big daydreamer. I almost never did homework when it was assigned unless it was interesting to me. Like I remember doing something on pandas because I was interested in pandas. So I embraced (laughs) that one. But a lot of times I just didn't do it because I had no real family structure at home. There was nobody asking me if I had done my homework or telling me to do my homework. So actually I didn't do well in school until I entered college. By the time I entered college, I was mature enough to understand that I was doing it for myself, not because somebody else was telling me that I had to do it. Mm -hmm. And also in college, I had more leeway to to self-guide. And I think that allowing kids that have trouble with school or structured learning to self-guide and explore what's interesting to them is really important. That was certainly true for me. Once I could decide, like, I get to choose my courses, I get to choose if I want to read philosophy, I get to choose philosophy. Mm -hmm. It made a big difference for me in school. But... I did read almost everything. Like we would get these scholastic catalogs where kids are encouraged to order books from and I would buy and read every single book in there. Wow. Because you did actually read philosophy at university. So that was something that you chose that interested you. And by the early noughties, you were working as an editor-in-chief in the world of magazine publishing. My career began in magazines, actually. And so this passion for the written word was growing stronger and not before too long, actually, you founded Electric Literature along with Scott Lindenbaum. And I'm fascinated by this because it began as a quarterly journal in 2009 and you would publish essays and short stories digitally using the technology that was basically pretty new at the time. And it gave this sort of new voice or platform to introduce a new audience to the pleasure and the art of short stories. Am I right in saying that you were the first to publish non-fiction to an iPhone and the first to create a YouTube channel? Because this is incredibly forward thinking. We were the first to create a literary magazine publishing fiction to the iPhone that people could subscribe to or do in-app purchases to buy stories. That was in 2009. The iPhone had not been out for very long when we jumped on that. That was part of our overall philosophy. You know, at the time, the recording industry had gone through this massive disruption and shrank by something like 70% where once Mm. the digital world kind of broke it open, the world of music was really disrupted by digital music. Now, the publishing world and the world of writing was, was also very afraid of that happening again. There were also a lot of people who were quite cranky about things like Twitter and YouTube, video games, Facebook, all of these things that were new, that were attracting everyone's attention. As you said earlier, like it's hard Mm -hmm. to have those distractions and they're pulling people away from reading. So there was a real hostility towards technology and a reluctance to engage with it in the literary and publishing world. What made electric literature different at the time was unlike the American author Philip Roth, who was saying there are going to be no serious readers of the novel in 20 years. We said, we're going to take all of these things that seem to threaten literary culture, all of these supposed enemies of meditative reading, and we're going to use it in the power of promoting the culture and the work that we love. Mm -hmm. So we're going to use Twitter. We're going to use YouTube. We're going to use apps. We're going to make sure that if, if on the subway 10 years ago, 
everybody would have a book in their hands. Now everybody is staring at their phones. Well, what are they staring at on their phones? They don't have to be playing Candy Crush. They could be reading a good story. <laughs> so we took all of these things that seemed to threaten literary culture and we tried to use them. And that was part of meeting readers where they were. We weren't denying or trying to turn back time and hope that young people would suddenly put down their phones and pick up books all the time. We wanted to tell them something on their phone, which would make them want to pick up a book. So, you know, we created channels of communication, which were really powerful. Our Twitter following in 2009 was over 100,000 people, which was bigger than Penguin Random House at the time. Mm. We had so many young people coming up to us and reaching out to us saying like, I love what you're doing, et cetera, et cetera. We were reaching readers that were not being reached by publishing as it was at the time. And it's ironic now because if I went to a cocktail party and people said, well, what did you do to innovate with your first company? And I said, oh, we use social media to promote ourselves. Like, it seems like the most obvious thing in the world, but at the time it was <laughs> revolutionary. And one other thing I'll say about it is that we were the optimistic voice in a sea of pessimism. That makes people attracted to you. Mm. And that helped us a ton just being optimistic and saying that, you know, all of these digital advancements can be used to promote our culture and to bring people together and, and reach millions of people in a way that nothing else can. So, you know, it's like a tool and it can be used for good or ill. And we were just trying to use it for good. NatWest's support for small businesses goes way beyond simply finance and day-to-day -day banking. Through their online business hub, you can find all kinds of useful information on how to kickstart and grow your business, from strategy and planning to sales and marketing. And it's all free. Head over to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker, where you'll also be able to view my exclusive video sharing top tips for small businesses and sign up for free email business updates. Now, as you know, every week we run a competition with NatWest who give away their ad break to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your business to tens of thousands of listeners. So let me hand over to this week's NatWest Independent Ad Break winner. Hey mums, what do you do with a fussy eater? I know, Munchy Place Kid Plate. Here's the thing, when children reach that joyous age of around 18 months, they start to discover their independence. You might have heard of the terrible twos or three in age years, and that's when you need Munchie Play, the first ever kids' plate with a built-in track for toy cars and trains. The tableware is designed for toddlers and preschoolers, helping to solve mealtime struggles by inviting kids to the table and keeping them there. They're made in Britain, and better still, they're made by a mum. I mean, obviously, only a mum would come up with such a genius parent hat. A kid's plate with high sides for scooping food, a non-slip base, dishwasher safe and BPA free. You've got a toddler, know a toddler or looking for a toddler gift? Be sure to check out... Mindy Play! It's sure to keep mealtimes on the right track. Available now on Amazon, Etsy and munchyplay.com. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be heard by tens of thousands of people, we've created more information on what we're looking for at our website, holly.co. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. It's having the bravery to basically look at all the naysayers out there, what they're talking about, and actually think, what if I took all of that noise and, and what if I did something differently? Just because people say something does not mean it's going to be true. And what if I'm that person in my industry? And I think it's very interesting when you look at the food industry, you know, no one's going to buy food online or you look at uh, beauty even or fashion and net -a and no one's going to buy a thousand dollar dress online. You know, they did. And it's for those people with the bravery to think like that, like yourself, that 
ultimately change our society. A few years later in 2015, you then went on to co-found LitHub, a site which encouraged online conversation about literature. It was so important, wasn't it, that you were talking about independent bookshops. You were starting conversations um, and you were making it less of a solitary activity. And you had hundreds of partners, publishers big and small. And when I was researching this, I know that LitHub's, one of its missions was the bricks and mortar bookshops. So this was always very important to you. Oh yeah, for sure. By 2015, especially, it was really obvious that culture as we knew it had moved online. The cultural conversation was what was happening online. And I felt very strongly that we needed an independent source for literary culture that reminded people and advocated for the importance of books all the time. Because everybody was reading these feeds, whether they are on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, they're reading their stream. And if you want people to be thinking about books, you've got to get stories about books into those streams. What I saw and what Morgan Entrican, who founded LitHub with me, who is also the publisher of Grove Atlantic Books, is that there's tons of good conversation about literature online, but it was a lot of it was in small blogs that had, you know, readerships of maybe a thousand people. Even major publishers would have great blogs that very, very few people remembered to visit and read. And so Literary Hub was like, well, what if we put all the best of this stuff in one place? Mm. So people didn't have to remember to check FSG's blog or Tin House's blog or the Paris Review's blog, but they could read selections from all of those places in one place and get a daily newsletter which compiles it all for them. That way we can take all of this incredible content that is already being created and just bring it to a broader audience. And, you know, the statistics say that the average person has eight websites that they visit regularly. And it's really hard to be one of those eight websites. None of those websites could do it on their own, but together we could bring it together and create something that was greater than the sum of its parts. And it has been true. I mean, LitHub has over 25 million readers every year. They're all over the world. And so that also is part of creating a fabric and an ecosystem that isn't dominated by corporations that don't actually care about the culture that you care about. Mm -hmm. Like Facebook doesn't really care about books. You can create a Facebook page on about books. You can create a Twitter page about books. You can advertise your stuff on Google and you can sell books on Amazon. But in the end, you're just another piece of data for them. You need to have a community which is owned and operated by and for the community that it represents. And that's really what LitHub is doing, is having all those places be partners and stakeholders. We have librarians, we have mm. independent bookstores, we've got literary magazines, we've got websites, we've got publishers, we've got authors. They're all collectively involved as content partners bringing stuff to the table. And was that also this part which was celebrating the local bookshops? Because I suppose all of those people that you're speaking about had their favourite bookshop or something that really meant a lot to them. And I interviewed recently a gentleman called Taymor. He's founded a company in the UK but sells all over the world, Papier, which is the most beautiful personalised stationery. And we spoke about the blending of two worlds, you know, digital and analogue. Do you ever see one of these areas becoming more popular than the other? Or do you feel that each one has its place, the bookshop and the online presence of that bookshop? They have been fairly disconnected up until now. You know, the independent bookstores and local physical brick and mortar bookstores haven't had much of an impact online. That's changing now and we're trying to help them make that change. But it's always been true that physical books have been extremely important to any kind of conversation or sales or anything that happens online. Ebooks, in the beginning, people thought that they were going to take over. Yes, they did. <laughs> they ended up leveling out at around 20% of the market. Some people prefer to read that way, but people still love physical books. Throughout the past decade, I've seen countless digital-only publishers appear with great designs towards like becoming the future of publishing, and it never works out. Even if they get really big authors to do digital-only publications, they can never really crack the audience that they want to crack. And I think that's because 
the physical book does a lot of work. The physical book sitting on a table in a bookstore, in a library, having people happen upon those and be able to discover writing in that way just works. And it's really essential. So one of the reasons I think it's so important to keep bookstores around, we talk about a ton of different reasons, but one of them is that just that you want that physical grassroots to be available to people. You need it to happen to have that kind of conversation starters and to connect with people in a way that then manifests itself online. Somebody can be reading a book and then they post about it on Instagram. Mm -hmm. But without that first book as the seed or the spark, that post on Instagram wouldn't happen. And so the physical world needs the digital world in order to spread the word. But the digital world also needs the physical world to ground it. You know, I always talk about the independent high street and I love chatting about this because I don't think anyone's cracked what this is going to look like. But if you almost took it down to basics and you sort of wanted to create a community again, you know, there's certain things that you know would be in that community. Of course, fashion shops would come and go and all these sorts of things, but you would have the greengrocers, you would have the butchers, you would have the fishmonger, you would have the bookshop. It's ingrained in our communities. And I know that this is really why the bookshop.org has begun because it's been described as a revolutionary moment in the history of bookselling, a socially conscious alternative to Amazon that allows readers to buy books online while supporting their local independent bookseller. Now, might you do me the honour of sharing a bit more about how this all works? Yeah, absolutely. Well, bookshop.org it was created in response to two trends, really. One is that Amazon was growing year over year. We went from about 15% of the market in the U.S. 10 years ago to over 50% of the market in the U.S. It's over 50% of the market in the U.K. now. When any one player controls that much of the market, it's just not healthy for authors, for publishers, for readers. It's too much consolidation. You need a thriving, diverse market to really support the culture. And so I became worried about bookstores in particular because I knew that bookstores are very low margin businesses. At a certain point, if Amazon controls too much of the market, they're just going to find it impossible to survive. And Amazon aggressively downprices its products in order to gain that market share. So they're selling books at a loss many of the time. If a big popular bestseller comes out, they'll lose money on every sale mm. because they want to gain the customer. And the independent bookshops, they can't possibly compete with that. Um, they can't also compete with Amazon in inventory, and they can't compete with Amazon on turnaround time. Somebody wants their book in three days, and they have to order it from a wholesaler, order it from the publisher, get it in stock, send it out, or have the person come and pick it up. It's just too complicated. And a lot of these stores are tiny. Mm. Sometimes they're literally mom and pop stores owned by a single person or a couple or a family. And Sometimes they only have one or two employees. They don't necessarily know how to build a website. They don't necessarily have the money it takes to build a website and run an e-commerce operation. At the same time, they need to do something because e-commerce as a portion of consumer activity is growing every single year. Or in other words, people buy more stuff online every year than they did the previous year. So in order for these brick and mortar stores to survive long term, they need to have an e-commerce strategy. Mm -hmm. and, and it basically just means they need to give their customers a way to support them all the time. And sometimes customers want just to order a book in the middle of the night and get it without worrying about it delivered to their doorstep. And what we started to see is more and more people doing that on Amazon, even if they love their local bookstore and they shopped it there during the day or when it was convenient. They'd shop on Amazon at night. So that was one of the things I was really worried about. You know, in five years, how many of these stores are going to be around if these trends continue? And the other thing that I was concerned with is everywhere I went on the internet to read about books, they would all link to Amazon. If I read a book review, if I read an interview, if I read a roundup of the best books for the holiday season, they'd all be filled with Amazon links. There was a funnel as wide as the internet that was pushing every book lover into Amazon. Now, the reason for that is that Amazon would pay a bounty on every customer they receive that way. So if you click on a link in an article and go to Amazon and buy a book, Amazon will pay the person who wrote that article 4.5% of that cover price as a reward for sending you to them. So I knew that we needed one of those things, but have it support independent bookstores as well. And it's called an affiliate program. And it means that anybody that links to 
bookshop.org can earn 10% of any sale that they drive, but we also give a matching 10% to independent bookstores. So we're giving away 20% of every sale, 10% to the affiliate, 10% to the bookstore. And we're slowly taking links away from Amazon and having people link to Bookshop, which keeps the money in the community and in the ecosystem. Now, to solve the problem for stores being able to get online, we created something that is so simple, where a store can create a shop on Bookshop in a half an hour, and then they can create lists of their favorite books, their picks for Christmas, their favorite thrillers, their favorite kids' books, just the way that they give personal recommendations in shops. And there's no time investment at all. It really you know, can be done in an hour. And once they're online, they can start sending their customers to their bookshop shop. Critically, they don't fulfill the orders. The orders go directly to a wholesaler, and the wholesaler is the one that sends the book to the customer. And the reason that that's really important is because those individual bookstores are not going to have the inventory that Amazon has, and they're not going to have the turnaround time that Amazon has. But Gardner's, which is the wholesale in the UK, they do have that inventory and they do have that turnaround time. So they can get a book to you in two days. And the bookstore gets the profit for the sale, but they don't actually have to touch the book. And they don't have to ship out and spend all their time like packing envelopes and going to post them. And so the high street bookshops have this seamless, easy way to start getting up online. Their customers have a seamless, easy way to support them. And this model was created to counter the trends of Amazon kind of taking over, but it turned out to be a perfect model to deal with in a pandemic. Because in a pandemic, you're not allowed to open your shop. Yes. You're not allowed to have your customers in and put their health at risk or put your employees' health at risk. So it turned out that we created the perfect model for a pandemic because all these shuttered bookstores could keep selling to their customers. This is such an honor to hear your story, Andy. For someone who has represented small businesses for the last 20 years, some of the changes that you've made, this is beautiful. This is the new way of doing business. Tell me about scaling. Because as much as this is all brilliant, how are you dealing with this fast-paced scale? Well, I have to say it's been the most stressful year of my life. It hasn't been glamorous at all. I mean, honestly, in the beginning when New York City schools closed down, my kids were like on these old janky laptops trying to navigate Zoom for the first time. I'm trying to run bookshop and our sales are going through the roof. I mean, the eight and a half million is the profit. The actual sales are about four times that. That's a ton of orders or five times that. So we found what we thought was going to be a slow ramp up turned into like this fire hose of orders. And, you know, I was getting up at five in the morning. I was going to bed at 11 at night. I was stressed out all the time, trying to fix everything, making sure things like shipping notifications were happening, scaling up our customer service team. We could never get ahead of our customer service tickets because, you know, we were selling so many books that even four to 8% of our orders resulting in an email question from a customer ended up being thousands and thousands of emails that we were trying to get ahead of, which we, no matter how many people we started hiring, we couldn't quite get there. Yeah, it was a real white knuckled ride. It was super stressful. And my landlord decided to excavate the basement during the same time period. No. So the entire time that I'm trying to do all this, there's a jackhammer like 10 feet underneath me. Oh, it was like the universe was testing you have been a bit of a knight in shining armour for some of the businesses that have had to close their stores. So, you know, they're not allowed to open. Maybe seeing the success of online now, maybe thinking, actually, you know, I'm going to go online. Um, is that a worry for you that you might lose some of your vendors once the shops start opening? Or is it going to be the best of both worlds? I don't know. What's your viewpoint here? I think that the more stores reopen and sell books to their customers, the better. So that's great when that happens. And we had, June was our biggest month um, in the US. And by September and October, there was a great easing of the lockdowns. Most stores were allowing customers in mm -hmm. socially distanced, like five customers at a time. Our sales dropped by you know, about 35 or 40%. And we were happy to have that happen because that was almost all stores that had relied on us 100% 
of their sales, yep. suddenly being able to sell to customers in their physical spaces again. And that's great. And honestly, we were still doing awesome. Like we were still selling $4 million worth of books a month. And that was in September and October. And that was great. Now, November, because the lockdowns are coming back in and because Christmas is coming, it's gone crazy again. And that's great too. The, there's so much room to grow because Amazon controls so much of the market. We can expand the slice of the pie that independent booksellers have. If we do five times what we're doing now, we're still going to only have taken 5% of Amazon's customers away or sales away. Mm. And so there's so much room. So we just need to keep beating the drum of ethical, conscious consumerism, which I think is part of what you're touching on when you're talking about supporting local businesses. The reason that small businesses are so great is it's less alienating. It's very alienating to be in a world where you don't see people, all of your packages are delivered to your door, and you get up in the morning and go work in a warehouse sending packages to other people's doors. That's not a utopian future. The corporations skip out on taxes, which are needed to support local schools, local roads, all of the community infrastructure. So it's just not a healthy world where these giant mega corporations supply us our physical needs without supplying any of our emotional needs. Mm. Um, so consciously choosing the kind of world you want to live in is essential. People are waking up to it. And so I think that there's a lot of room to grow if that's our message and if we're part of this kind of movement towards conscious consumerism. All year, together with our friends at Three, we're working to make business dreams come true. Share your dreams on social using the hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer, and who knows what will happen. Three understands it's been a tough time for businesses, so they're offering their business price promise. A promise that if you find a better deal, they'll beat it. Not only that, I love that they offer up to £500 of benefits from specialist partners to help your business thrive. Head to 3.co.uk forward slash terms for terms and conditions. Now, here's a short story about those that dreamed big and flew. You have to believe in yourself when no one else does. These are the words of Serena Williams, an icon in the world of tennis who has broken barriers and smashed records. The youngest of five daughters, Serena and the rest of the Williams family, moved from Michigan to a rundown suburb of LA when she was a baby. An avid fan of tennis, Serena's father envisioned his daughters as champions even before they were born. And at the age of three, Serena began intensive training before turning professional aged just 14. Winning her first major championship in 1999, Serena's talent and ambition have seen her revolutionise women's tennis. Her powerful style of play has seen her win more Grand Slam titles than any other man or woman during the Open era. Serena has gone on to beat all racial and gender barriers and her ambition and talent have driven her to become one of the most iconic sporting figures ever. As a Goodwill Ambassador of the United Nations Children's Fund, Serena has worked extensively with the charity and spreads the message that everyone's dream can come true if you just stick to it and work hard. Don't forget to share your own business dreams on social using the hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer. And to find out more about their business plans, search Three Means Business. Now, Back to Conversations of Inspiration. Very often I talk about voting with your money. Vote with your money for the kind of world that you want to live in. Certainly you talk about this conscious consumer. You're a B Corp. I'm going to become a B Corp in February, hopefully. We've just put in our paperwork. It's taken one year to get there, so I know how difficult it is. Tell me about your advice that you would share with small businesses or those listening who think either, Christ, you know, I'm a bit vacuous. I need to do something about it. Or to those founders who are thinking, you know what, I'm going to do something now. I'm going to build my dreams. What advice would you give around the mission that you certainly have built with bookshop.org? For Bookshop, we're looking at it as a collaborative model, not a competitive model. 
we're saying that we can all sustain ourselves. And so we're looking for partnerships with stores, with readers, with authors, who are all kind of invested in the same thing. We're not trying to undermine everyone else to get ours. And I think that's really critical is to see who's out there that you can partner. How can you create a collaborative environment where you can all benefit? I think that's the difference between a socially conscious enterprise and just kind of raw, untrammeled capitalism, which can leave destruction in its wake. It's just a civic mindedness. And and it boils down to having some empathy for people and to have a knowledge of your place in the world and their place in the world and understanding that the best scenarios are ones that everyone is supported. Creating a small business is going to be figuring out what you love and figuring out how to make that build that business around what you love, because that's what's going to motivate you. If Bookshop was any other kind of e-commerce operation, I might be less involved in it. Although I do sort of want to create a bookshop for toys and a bookshop for other things. So I'm not putting that (laughs) off the table, but I also like toys. But, you know, figuring out what you love and building the business around it means that you're going to be emotionally and spiritually invested in it. And it also means that your message, your marketing message is going to be genuine. And something that is very true of millennials and social media savvy generations is they can spot insincerity and the sincerity that comes naturally if you actually are doing what you love and care about what you're doing and mean your mission is going to show through. And so building that community is essential. And I think it's even essential for little small local mom and pop bookshops. And that's part of what we're trying to do. In my little shop, Holly and Co., I'd loved that my local community didn't have a bookshop. And so I decided that actually in our back room, we would create a bookshop. I'm interested because actually when we look at this new independent high street, we look at people doing what they love. Your technology has really now allowed lots of independent businesses, if they don't have a local bookshop, to create one. I'm just thinking about this transformation of the high street. If local communities don't have a bookshop, shop, you could then start to create one, you could support it online, and actually it wouldn't be that huge investment up front for that small business. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And we do require that our stores that receive the full benefit of the sale are physical brick and mortar bookstores. Yes. If there is a physical space and they are part of that community, then yeah, we want to be able to have them reinforce their business online and reinforce it with digital sales. And I think it just makes the whole thing a lot easier. If you can bring in even 20% of your revenue through digital sales that are passive Mm -hmm. and that you don't have to have credit with the publisher and pay the publisher to get the books and you don't have to physically process the books, print out the mailing labels, all that stuff. You just create the bookshop.org page and you're suddenly getting 30% and we're handling everything else. It's a great way to supplement and support your business. Thank you so much, Andy, for this time. You have given me, and I know everyone listening, so much to think about. But I do end all of my interviews with this analogy that running a business is like being on an epic roller coaster. Now, I know you know that, right? But you've got a carriage on your roller coaster full of books, and you're trying to make room for your own body in there. You've got so many books, and you're hurtling along, I know, at 4,000 miles an hour at the moment. What has been one of your biggest lows so far in your career? Um, After the success of electric literature, I was thinking about mobile devices and what was different about a mobile device than anything else that people use to consume media before. And I thought I was really excited about location-based services, like the way that people could find out about their surroundings through their phone's locations. My partner, Scott Lindenbaum, and I came up with an app called Broadcaster. And Broadcaster allowed anyone to create a story about a place that they were standing in. So they could tell their story just into their phone. This is where I grew up. This park was founded in this time. This is where a certain civil war battle occurred, anything like that. We got venture capital investment on that one and grew the platform to hundreds of thousands of users, got great press. We had some amazing neighborhoods where you could just put the app on your phone and walk around and hear from all the different people who grew up in those neighborhoods or the historical societies. It was really profound and I loved the idea and I still love the idea. I love the idea of like, I just moved 
what if I could hear from the people who used to live in this house yeah. because they pin their stories here? But unfortunately, we found that we weren't getting the kind of re-engagement. People would download the app. They would get very excited. They'd walk around their neighborhood. They'd use it for a week. And then they'd stop using it because there weren't enough news stories. And in the end, after about a year, we realized that it was just too hard. There's an advantage. If you're YouTube, you're showing the most compelling videos. Or if you're TikTok, you're showing the most compelling videos made by users all the world over. So the cutest cat video in the world is always going to be cuter than the cutest cat video in your neighborhood. <laughs> so it turned out that local content was tougher because it wasn't always going to be as high quality as the stuff that you could get if you mm -hmm. grew it to the world. And there wasn't going to be enough new content to keep people coming back again and again to have user re-engagement. So probably my lowest moment was when I had to fold Broadcaster painful. Oh, I feel that for you. Absolutely. And conversely, when the wind was in your hair and you were on the top of the roller coaster. I'm happy to say that I've had a lot of top of the roller coaster moments. I wish that I was the kind of person who could fully enjoy them. I'm afraid that even when I'm on the top of the roller coaster, I'm <laughs> thinking about the problem. I'm the same. I'm the same. <laughs> or how you would better it. You yeah. know, it's like, it's like, well, this is great, but it could be better, yeah, you know, exactly. yes. Exactly, or like, I know it's going to go, it's, there's a downturn, I can see it right in the corner. Oh, the right, horizon. yes. Um, <laughs> sometimes I, I will like have a moment where I'm excited and have a drink with friends or colleagues and celebrate, but it never lasts that long. But, you know, when everything I've started, Literary Hub, Electric Literature, Catapult, and Bookshop.org, there's always been moments where... I was blown away with excitement. You know, when sales at bookshops started increasing, we sold $50,000 worth of books in February. There were actually like people on podcasts saying like, oh, it's kind of disappointing. We thought the bookshop was going to be like this major source of support for independent bookstores. And they only earned $10,000 in their first month. And then like two weeks after that, sold $50,000 worth of books in a day. And then three weeks later, we sold $150,000 worth of books in a day. Mm. Three months after that, we sold a million dollars worth of books in a day in June. So all of those moments, they were all nerve wracking moments because we weren't prepared and ready to sell all those books. And so we had a lot of site infrastructure stuff trying to keep the site up and make sure all the orders got to all the customers. But yeah, those moments where it was like, oh my God, this is working. This is making it. Those were great top of the roller coaster moments. And the other moments that were top of the roller coaster for me was just getting emails from bookstores who were like, thank God you came along. Mm. We wouldn't have been able to survive the pandemic. We wouldn't have been able to make our rent if it hadn't been for bookshop.org. And that was extremely meaningful to me and still is. And long may that live. I think you'll have those top of the roller coaster moments for a very, very long time as you continue this wonderful journey. It's that time of the podcast where I know that you've prepared a letter to your younger self and I don't know what it's going to say, but thank you very much for doing that. And I hand over to you. Let me put on my reading glasses <laughs> um, and find it. Hi, Andy. I have to admit I have misgivings about writing this letter because I wouldn't want something I said to change your future. And that's the good news, I suppose. We have ended up in a good place. I'm afraid to give you advice that would help you avoid the pain you felt in your life. Avoid the mistakes you've made. Because the many, many mistakes have miraculously led to a place of mutual love, of family, and then of a life with meaning. The mistakes and the pain are the road that led you to this place of love. Thinking of writing this letter, of communicating back in time, I imagined a magician who finds a magic clock that can send him back to his youth, with the catch that he'd revert to his younger self without any memories of his future or the life he ended up living. The magician, an old man who had many regrets, decides to turn back the hands of his magic clock, returning to when he was a young man, hoping to make fewer grave errors, to do it right this time around. But the clock doesn't work. The knob just spins uselessly. So he takes the back off the clock to find out why and sees that all the gears have worn away. And he realizes he reached this point countless times, each time deciding to return to try again until he's finally worn out the machinery. It's not a great use of time dwelling on regrets beyond what we learn from them. 
the fact is, every single day we can be like that magician having just reversed time, not knowing what's going to happen. But we can say, I am conscious. I am alive. We can look at our lives right now, appreciate what we have, and we can start changing the things that we want to change. Everyone's life is sort of like a video game. You wake up in a room with amnesia. You have no idea who you are, what kind of world you're in, what the rules are, or what's in store for you. We started the game as babies, and we figured it out from there. I'm not sure how to win the game, but I am sure how to lose. To lose, you take everything at face value, accept all the rules of the world as you're told them, and follow your expected role in the world. To lose, be afraid to take risks, be afraid to fail, and don't test the game's limits. Now that I think about it, though, that metaphor is ironic because if I were to give advice in this letter, one thing I'd say is to not play so many video games in your youth. They're accomplishment simulators, absorbing countless hours that could be spent achieving unsimulated accomplishments. But anyway, how do you win the game? At the end of the day, it's been said so many times, it feels like a cliche. But beyond meeting your essential needs, you take care of and nurture the loves in your life. Try not to worry so much. Meditate on the people that you love, the things that you love, and the activities that you love to do. And tend to them, make time for them, care for them, and hold on to them. They're the only thing in this game that is real. With love, your future self, Andy Hunter. Wow. Of course you have a way with words. Of course you do. What a letter. As I said before, I think um, you are just so one to watch and I cannot wait to watch what you build, the way that you conduct yourself. And I think it's going to be a beacon of inspiration for not only people like myself building businesses, but for all of those dreaming. And thank you for doing what you're doing because it's so needed and it's such of service to the world and um, combating so many things that we all believe in, but you're actually walking the walk and not just talking the talk. So thank you, Andy, for your time today and for that beautiful, eloquent, magical letter. Thank you. Thank you, Holly. And thank you for walking the walk and talking the talk too. And thanks for <laughs> talking the talk with me today. Before you go, don't forget NatWest's Business Builder full of videos and advice to help you build your business and give you the tools you need. To find out more, head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker. If you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.